All right. Wow, it's great to see you all this morning. See the bleachers rammed at the back there. Um, forgive me if I limp around a little bit this morning. I managed to kind of stub my foot in the basement yesterday, and it's all black and blue. So, <laughs> you'd see me dragging my way around the Hobby Lobby with my little daughter yesterday, and she was kind of skipping along. And I was like, <laughs> anyway, it seems a little bit better today. Um, okay, so um, don't know why I'm telling you all this stuff. Um, before we start this morning, just by way of intro, I want to take you on a, a kind of uh, imaginative exercise, if you will. I want to take you to a particular place in time, um, and I want you to really focus on this. It might help at some point just to kind of close your eyes and picture the scene, but I want to drop you into a very particular moment in history. We're going to go to Rome um, in AD 70. Don't worry, that will come back. Um, and let's just actually do that right now. So... Okay, if you just refresh that. Here it is. Okay, so this is a model that was made of Rome um, as it looked in about AD 100. So it's kind of a little bit different from AD 70. The Colosseum there was built in about AD 80, so a little bit after us, after the date that I'm going to focus in on. Um, But you can see immediately Rome is a really heaving city, uh, not that different from the kind of modern cities that we're used to now. Um, This is what it looks like today. Um, This is the Roman Forum. Many of you will have been there. This was the center of government in Rome, uh, the equivalent, I guess, of our capital buildings and so on. Uh, This is the place where the Caesars made their uh, great pronouncements, the great triumphs uh, of the Roman military took place. So this is our place. This is Rome. It's vast. It's hot. It's smelly. It's kind of like a modern city in some ways, but no main sewage or anything like that. So it's a pretty intense place to be. Um, And what I want to do is I want to take you to a particular place, um, an apartment building, a kind of Roman high-rise, I guess. So let's just show you what that might have looked like. The Romans actually did uh, a lot of, uh, if you just refresh it, um, a lot of high-rise building. Um, Not quite like we do with skyscrapers, but they would get up to six or seven stories, and they would build these apartment blocks really just to manage the density of the population. So this wasn't a uh, particularly glamorous place to live. They were packing people into these places. Um, and I want to take you to one of these right now. So imagine that we're in this building. Uh, it's downtown Rome. We're on the third or fourth floor, looking out of a window, and all you can see is the back of the next apartment block. Um, and you're in this room, um, and you're standing next to a man seated at a desk, and he's writing. Uh, and the man that you're envisioning here is the Apostle Mark, And he's writing Mark's gospel. So I want you to think a little bit about what it was like to be Mark in Rome in AD 70. First of all, Rome was a difficult place to be a Christian because Christians were just thought to be incredibly weird. Um, uh, Romans didn't understand what Christians did or what they believed. They actually thought that Christians, it was kind of popularly imagined that Christians were cannibals uh, because of what they did with Holy Communion. That's the way that uh, the Roman culture read that. Uh, They thought that Christians were a a divisive influence in Roman society because they wouldn't go to the theater and they wouldn't uh, play their part in the gladiatorial combats and all that kind of stuff. Um, But there was more to it than that. It wasn't just being felt odd. Um, Actually, there were some really important uh, kind of structural problems for Christians living in Rome um, because the Roman emperor required worship as a deity, as a test of loyalty to the Roman state. So it was possible that one day someone would come knocking on your door and say, do you worship the emperor? Difficult question. Because if you say no, 
you can be hauled off in front of a judge somewhere, taken to prison, possibly even executed. And at the stage that we're dropping in, in AD 70, things have recently taken a turn even for the worse than that. Let's look at the emperor who's on the throne in AD 70. Here he is. This is Augustus Nero, one of uh, history's most notorious psychopaths. Um, (laughs) Really. Um, In AD 64, um, while he was in charge, there was a great fire in the city of Rome. It lasted for six days and seven nights. And the emperor was so unpopular uh, that people thought that he had started the fire deliberately. People thought that he was trying to clear great blocks of the city in order to build it all kind of to a new architectural plan of his own devising. So it would be his monument to history. And uh, Nero needed someone to blame. And um, you can guess who he picked, those weird people, the Christians. Um, And he was really, really serious about this. So he decided that he was going to send people, uh, military police, door to door, going looking for Christians and trying to find them. Um, and when he found them, he did some pretty horrible things to them. Uh, he uh, would dress Christians in animal furs, throw them into the arena, and then have them uh, chased and killed by lions or wolves. Um, we've got a, uh, there's a very famous painting, actually, of uh, Nero in his arena. Here he is, looking at the body of a dead Christian. Um, he would crucify people in mockery of their saviour. Um, it's said that in the evenings, he would light his garden by dousing Christians in oil and setting them alight. So you get the idea of what this guy was like. So imagine this now. We're in this apartment building thinking about what it's like to be a Christian. Well, every day when you wake up in Rome in AD 70, you don't know whether this is going to be your last day. You don't know whether this is the day you're going to be denounced by a neighbor or betrayed maybe by another believer under torture. And so you can see that the church was under really incredible pressure. The apostle Peter had been in Rome as a leader. He was crucified by Nero. Paul had been under house arrest in Rome. Uh, He was beheaded by Nero. And by God's grace, some people who weren't so noticeable, so prominent in the church as those two individuals did manage to make it through without being denounced or questioned. And Mark is one of them. His day hasn't come just yet. But others, many others in the church, survived because they just collapsed under the pressure. And you can really see why. They denied their faith to save their own lives or to save the lives of their families. And in this situation, we've got this guy, Mark. Just get this. He's willing there to be be identified as a leader in that community, knowing what that might cost. He's willing to stand firm amid that level of danger And he's pastoring now what remains of this church that's been just completely decimated by Nero's persecution, that's full of people who have failed, people who have run away, people who have let themselves down and let their savior down. And instead of compromising the story of Jesus's life, which would have been so easy for him to do, no, he's writing it down. He's drawing from Peter's legacy, who he knew, and he's writing it all down so that if this day is the day when the police come knocking on the door, it will be there for other people, that they will have the accurate record of the life and deeds of Jesus. And I just want to ask us, who is this guy? And where does he come from? Where do you get someone like this Mark character? Well, that's the uh, question that we're going to see answered in a funny way in the passage that we're going to deal with today in Acts. 
But before we get there, I just want to take us on one little extension of our imaginative journey. Will you come back with me from AD 70, just another eight years to AD 62? And we're going to be in another apartment block now, slightly nicer looking one, um, because the gentleman who lives here is being held at the pleasure of the Roman state. Here he is, the Apostle Paul. Privately, I hope he had a slightly cooler haircut than that, but, you know, anyway, that's a famous painting of him for what it's worth. Um, And this scene is very similar to the other one. He's at his desk. He's writing. Actually, he's writing a letter. But the difference is just that there's someone with him in the apartment. He's got uh, an assistant, uh, a young man called Onesimus. Now, Onesimus is an interesting character. He's a runaway slave. He really should be 1,200 miles away in the Greek city of Colossae. But he's not there because he ran away from his master, which is a really big deal. It's a really serious offense to just break away from your master and run as a slave. But somehow Onesimus has found his way from Greece to Rome, and he's come under the teaching of Paul and uh, of the gospel and has become a Christian. And now Paul considers him a fellow worker. He's revealed these amazing gifts that God has given him. And now Paul is writing a letter to Onesimus' old master. Actually, we've got this letter in our Bibles. It's the letter to this guy Philemon. Philemon was Onesimus' old boss. And Paul is begging him to give Onesimus a second chance. Now, Paul is being the pastor in this situation because he knows that this young man made a stupid mistake. And he knows that, thinking logically, taking this runaway back into employment under Philemon is a really silly thing to do. You know, there are much better slaves, much more reliable prospects that Philemon could pick. But notwithstanding that, Paul is begging Philemon to take him back because he believes in the life-changing power of the gospel. Paul believes that having failure in your past doesn't necessarily mean that you will have failure in your future when Jesus is involved. And I just want to ask us a similar question with Paul. Where did he get that attitude? Where did Paul get that ability to see the possibility of a second chance for someone who had gone so far wrong as Onesimus? Well, I hope we're going to see the answer to that in our passage in Acts today as well. So let's get to this now. Um, This is going to be uh, beginning at Acts 15, verse 36. And I want to warn you, um, when you crack this open for the first time, this just seems like a real kind of flat passage. Uh, When Westy and I were dividing this up, you know, Acts goes from these kind of barnstorming narrative sections to these, uh, like, um, rearrangement of the deck chairs passages where all the people get in their right places to do the next exciting thing. And this is one of those rearrangement passages, a real kind of ugly sister text. And um, I looked at that and I just thought, you know, what is there in here? Well, I've got to say, this has just been one of the most amazing journeys that um, I've been on in terms of just private Bible study and learning from the Lord. And I just pray, and I hope you'll pray with me as we go through this, that God will give me grace to communicate to you the riches that are in this text, because it really is outstanding um, and striking. So um, let's pray now, and then we'll read it together. Lord Jesus, we just want to come before you now, knowing as we do every time that we open your word, that we are absolutely dependent on you and on your grace. Uh, We long that you would speak to us. We long that you would speak into our lives and into our own individual situations, into the needs that we face. God, we long that you would equip us and strengthen us and that you would give us hope where we're struggling and strength where we're failing. And I just pray, Jesus, that you would please work through 
this message and through our time together this morning just to make this a really important uh, insight, a really important moment of insight into your character. And Lord, that you would send us away from here equipped to serve you and love you. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's stand. This is Acts 15, starting at verse 36. And we're going to run this all the way through to 16, verse 10. All right. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was, a Jewish, was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they traveled from town to town, sorry, and as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, so do take a seat. This is what we've got to work with this morning. Um, And we're just going to get back on the screen here a a map now so that you can see uh, what it is that we're doing. All right. Here we go. Okay, so this is going to help us a little bit. We've used this map before as we've been watching Paul and uh, his companions traveling around the Mediterranean. And uh, just for reference, you can see kind of roughly where this is in the world. Um, You know, we've got down here, here's uh, Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, and so on. Um, But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to drop this map of Michigan on here for scale. So you've got an idea of what's going on. And we've stuck Grand Rapids right over Jerusalem. G-R-Jerusalem, as as Matt would say. (laughs) All right. So, um, okay, so last time out, um, Matthew took us through the story of the Jerusalem Council, which is Acts 15. I wonder whether you remember that. This is this whole thing. Paul and Barnabas and others have been out evangelizing uh, all around the Mediterranean area, taking the gospel to Gentiles. And the question has arisen, do they have to keep all the Jewish law? Do they have to obey all the customs of Moses? And particularly in uh, Paul and Barnabas's home church, which is just here in Antioch, so let's just X that for you. Um, They've got some people who have come in and have been causing a real stir with this stuff. So Paul and Barnabas travel down to Jerusalem to go and ask the church there and the apostles there uh, what they think about it. 
And that's Acts 15. They get a great response. They decide that, no, the Gentiles don't have to keep the complete law of Moses. Um, And at the end of that section, they travel back up to Antioch, so the top X on our map, with three companions. Number one is Judas, also called Barsabbas. And he's one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And he's there to, to carry this letter that's been written with the decision. The second guy is a young man called Silas. And he also is a member of the church in Jerusalem. And he's just about to go on a whirlwind adventure. Within a year, he's going to be way over on the top side of our diagram. Let's just get it on here. Um, He's going to be up here in Philippi with Paul. Uh, He's the guy who was in prison with Paul when the earthquake strikes and all their chains fall off. Um, And shortly after that, sorry, shortly after that, um, we find him down here with Paul and Timothy in Corinth. Uh, founding the church there. So Silas is just about uh, to become quite a big character in the story. But the third guy, so the third companion who comes up from Jerusalem to Antioch, is maybe a little bit harder to see in the text. So I wonder whether you spotted it. It's there in chapter 15, verse 37. When Paul and Barnabas get back to Antioch, they're starting to plan their next missionary project. And Barnabas wants to take another young man with him, doesn't he? This guy called John Mark. Now, who is this guy? We have to do a little bit of work here to understand where John Mark comes from. The first place that we get a really clear sighting of him is in Acts 12. So this is just three chapters ago, but it's 10 years ago in history. Um, You'll remember this story. Acts 12 describes the imprisonment of Peter in Jerusalem, and he's not the first time and probably not the last time. He's imprisoned and uh, He finds himself in a cell, and in the middle of the night, he thinks he's seeing a vision. An angel appears, and his chains fall off. And he walks out, and the doors of the prison just open. And he finds himself out in the street, and the angel disappears, and suddenly he realizes, this is really happening. And he runs to the safe house, to the place where all the Christians in the city are meeting. And you get that comedy moment where Rhoda, the servant girl, he comes up and knocks on the door, and Rhoda's like, I think it's Peter. Maybe it really is. And she runs inside, leaving him outside. And then they have this extended debate. Could it possibly be really be Peter, even though they're praying their hearts out that he'll be released? When it actually happens, it seems like the most unlikely thing that could ever have happened. Um, And they leave Jerusalem's most wanted out in the road, kind of banging on the door. Anyway, that house, that's John Mark's mum's house. So John Mark is a young man still living at home. But you can see already from that incident that he's right in the thick of the action. You know, his house is the place where the big Jerusalem house church meets. So now fast forward with me eight years. So just two years before our story now. Um, You'll remember that by this time, Paul and Barnabas have got this church up and running in Antioch. And uh, they decide that they want to bring a gift down to the church in Jerusalem to help them out, some food and and some money. And so they travel down to Jerusalem. And while they're there, they meet John Mark. And something just clicks. Um, they see God working in this young man, and they decide that they're going to take him with them and have him as their helper on this upcoming missionary journey, the first missionary journey that they make. Now, let's just do a bit of kind of recap here for the benefit of people who weren't around over the summer. The first missionary journey is when Paul and Barnabas, together with John Mark as their helper, decide that they're going to head into this region on the map called Galatia to try and plant churches. So let's just show you where that is. They have four target cities in mind. One confusingly called Sidian Antioch, then another one called Iconium, another called Lystra, 
and another called Derby. And the way that they decide to do this, because their home church is here, they go across the sea to Cyprus, across the island, and then up across again to the southern coast of Galatia. And that's the way that they're going to actually get into this region. So that's basically the dimensions of this first missionary journey. And everything goes really well to start with. Um, They sail across to Cyprus, the three of them, and it's an amazing experience. Uh, Doors open for them to preach the gospel. The governor of the island becomes a Christian, um, and they see all of this stuff together, God working in amazing power. And then they sail up to the coast of Perga, and there we read this in Acts 13.13. John Mark left them. It says, from Cyprus, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga, and John Mark returned to Jerusalem. It doesn't seem like such a big deal, does it? You know, maybe John Mark got a note from his mum. You know, hey, we need some help, helping out here at home. Someone to look after Auntie Edna or something. And uh, he has to go. Uh, but actually what we find in uh, chapter 15, our passage, verse 38, is that it really was something a bit more serious than that. Did you see how Paul reflects on what happened? He said, John Mark deserted us and he didn't continue in the work. So what is it that actually happened? Well, again, we need to know something about that phase of the first missionary journey and those four cities that they visited in order to answer that. You see, those of us who are here to hear the sermon know that walking into that part of the world as a Christian was like walking into modern-day Afghanistan. Um, These four cities, they basically were either threatened with death or an attempt was actually made on their life in every single place. Uh, When they went to Sidian Antioch, they were run out of the city. In Iconium, they discover a plot against their lives and have to flee. The people who are trying to kill them follow them from Sidian Antioch to Iconium and finally catch up with them in Lystra, where Paul is stoned, dragged out of the city and left for dead. Uh, And amazingly, he recovers. uh, And then they go on to Derby from there. So you can see that this is no kind of uh, Sunday afternoon drive, no uh, nice, uh, easy holiday Uh, This is really serious business. And I think what happened is that when John Mark arrived with them on the southern coast of Galatia, and they started to get a feel for the spiritual temperature of this place that they were walking into, he fled. He was scared. He saw what was coming, and he ran. So that brings us now to the time in history of the passage we're reading today. The clock's rolled on another two years. And uh, Paul and Barnabas have been out there Uh, facing these dangers every day, planting churches and seeing God's protection and his grace on their work. But all through that time, John Mark has been in Jerusalem. And I want you just to think a little bit about what that would have been like. Uh, You know, imagine just going back, knowing that the reason that you're there is because you ran. Uh, And having people come up to you and say, hey, you're John Mark, aren't you? You're the guy who went off on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. How did it go? Was it, oh, oh, no, no. No, I heard about you. No, you're the guy who ran, aren't you? How, <laughs> you know, how do you cope with that kind of thing in your background? But anyway, our passage today actually suggests that somehow over these two years, John Mark had managed to make some progress. He prayed, he wrestled, he'd struggled with the mistake that he'd made, and he'd started to find his feet again. Because what we find is that when Paul and Barnabas went down to Jerusalem for that Jerusalem council, the three men meet, and Barnabas is so struck by the work that God has been doing in John Mark's life that he thinks he's ready for another shot. 
you know what's happening. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are planning a second missionary journey now. We see that in 15 verse 36. Let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So they want to go back into that region again. And it's Barnabas' suggestion that John Mark come with them. Now, why does Barnabas do this? Um, You know, this might be a little bit, imagine we're a regiment who have just been called back to a second tour of Afghanistan. I used that analogy earlier. And imagine I'm the colonel and I say to you, okay, team, we're going back to Afghanistan. And it's my recommendation that we take with us Corporal John Mark. Uh, You know, that guy when we were in Kabul in that really intense firefight and uh, we needed that specialist bit of assistance and we looked around and all we saw was him running into the distance. I think we should take him with us. So you're all thinking, you know, come on, come on, Colonel, this just doesn't seem like a good idea. You know, we all like John Mark. He's a nice guy, but this is serious. You know, he's a letdown. Why is it that Barnabas does this? Some people say that it's because Barnabas and John Mark were related, and that's true. Uh, Colossians tells us that the two men were cousins. But I think the story tells us that there's a little bit more to it than this. Um, You see, Barnabas has got history with this kind of thing. Barnabas is the guy who can see, people, see God working in other people's lives, even when they're the most unlikely candidates. Um, the clue is in his name, isn't it? Barnabas is a nickname. It means the son of encouragement. Um, and if you remember uh, that wonderful sermon that we had on encouragement from Westy a few months ago, an encourager is a person who can see and draw attention to the activity of God in, a, in another person's life. And that's what Barnabas was all about, even when people seemed incredibly unlikely. The most striking example of this is Paul himself, isn't it? Do you remember Paul's conversion story? He's trotting along the road on the way to Damascus, full of bloodthirsty determination to wipe out the church, and suddenly, blinding light from heaven. He's knocked off his horse. He's converted. And finally, he works his way back to Jerusalem and presents himself before the church to say, hey, I'm a changed man. Um, I'm ready to preach the gospel. And... What he sees is the backs of everybody running as fast as they can. It's like, oh, no. You know, they think that he's trying to pull some move on them, that he's trying to infiltrate the church to destroy them from within. It makes sense, doesn't it? You know, he's got the mandate to wipe the church out. Everyone does that except for Barnabas. You see, Barnabas is such a man after God's heart. He's so sensitive to the way that God works that I think he just saw what happened for exactly what it was. He believed. I think the clue to this or the key to it is that Barnabas was just a worshiper. He just loved Jesus so much. And so I don't think he was really all that surprised by Saul's conversion because in his heart he just said, well, if my God can calm the storm, my God can raise the dead, he sure can do this. And so he takes this ultimate outcast, this ultimate failure, the person who had been willing to murder people to stop the gospel spreading And he believed that God could redeem even that. And I think that is what's driving Barnabas now in our passage. He knew everything that happened with John Mark because he'd been there. He'd seen John Mark run away. But he also knew what Jesus can do. And so his heart went out to this young man. He knew that God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. And he said, John Mark, I want to be a minister of that to you. But Paul's response to this situation is a little bit different, isn't it? He doesn't think this is a good idea. 
And if we know the story, we should know that this is kind of ironic, isn't it? Because when Paul had been in John Mark's shoes himself, we know what happened. He had been the person who was tainted by past mistakes, and Barnabas said yes to him. But Paul says no. In fact, he says no, 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 no way, no way, Jose, no way. The Greek there doesn't quite say no way, Jose. That would be the Spanish version. But the... um, the, (laughs) The Greek does use this really interesting tense which suggests this continuous determination on Paul's part that he didn't just say no once, but he kept at it. And every time that Barnabas raised the issue, he would just slam it down. No, no way. So now let's think about the impact of that decision on all the different characters in our story. Think about John Mark to start with. I don't know whether any of you have been in the kind of situation that John Mark finds himself in here now, but I know that um, my wife Ruth and I have been there. Um, Many of you will know that we have uh, illness in our background, 10 years of of illness from my early 20s through to my early 30s. And uh, we have always just had, I think since I was a teenager, just a real sense of God's call to serve somehow. Um, And because I was sick and I was kind of, you know, bedridden and so on, we weren't really able to do much with that in terms of serving in the church. Um, And we watched lots of other people, good friends and so on, going on and leading house churches and, you know, becoming ministers and things. And it was wonderful to see that happen, but it wasn't God's path for us. And then ultimately, when um, we started to kind of work our way out of the end of that with so much help, um, we finally got to the point of putting our hand up with our church in London and saying, okay, we think we're ready. We would really love to serve somehow. We don't really mind how, but we would love to serve. But do you know the answer? We just got a polite but firm no. The reason you've had an illness, you're unreliable, you don't fit the boxes, you're too much of a risk. And I can't tell you how gutting that is. And maybe some of you have experienced that. When you've worked and prayed and striven to try and throw off some monkey that you've got on your back, but then the people who you love and respect the most won't believe that you're, you're making any kind of progress with it, Maybe some of you are there right now. Well, that's where John Mark is here. He's got a tarnished past. He knows it. He's got a black mark against his name. He's prayed, he's struggled, and he's got himself somehow with God's help to the point where he's ready to face his demons. He's worked through all the fear and embarrassment and shame. He's got to the point where he's got ready to go and face the people that he admires so much, but who he let down so badly. He knew the risks of what he was letting himself in for. He'd been there. He'd actually seen what it was that this second missionary journey would involve. But what happened? Well, he was totally destroyed by Paul. It was as if all that prayer and struggle for rehabilitation had nothing, uh, had no impact on Paul whatsoever. Paul just felt that his opportunity was gone. You know, nice guy, not a missionary. You're done, says Paul. You are unreliable. And it's kind of almost beyond just a description, isn't it? It's almost like a name. You are unreliable. It describes you. It defines you. You can't escape it. So that's John Mark. Think now about Barnabas. The passage tells us that Barnabas and Paul had such a sharp disagreement that they split. Their friendship of 12 years was broken. What a tragedy. Because these men were such friends, weren't they? They'd been through so much together. Barnabas had gone so far out of his way to set Paul up to succeed in ministry. 
But you see now how the passage tells us what happens. It says, Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. That little phrase, uh, Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, is a very important phrase in Acts. It's the kind of technical phrase that the church uses for sending someone out with their blessing. So it'd be like saying, Paul and Silas went off after being thrown in the prayer pit and being prayed over and stuck on the quad and being, have their faces splashed over all over the website. You know, that's kind of what it means. It's used in uh, chapter 14, verse 23, to describe Paul and Barnabas when they go off on the first missionary journey. So do you see that Paul leaves now with Silas, with the, with the official blessing of the church. Whatever we think of Paul's approach here to John Mark, the church in Antioch either didn't see or didn't have the guts to say that they thought Paul was out of order. But you see that Barnabas gets none of that. Even though he has been with this church in Antioch from the very start, he gets no official send-off. Barnabas just takes Mark and sails for Cyprus. It doesn't say Barnabas took Mark and left commended by the believers of the grace of the Lord. He wasn't. So by moving towards the outcast, you see that he was outcast himself. And it's striking for us, isn't it? Because we've been studying Isaiah 61 this summer and learning about God's heart for us to move towards need. And I think that when we do that, there's a temptation to think, well, you know, I'm going to move into these situations hoping that actually the response will be applause. (laughs) You know, I think, hey, I might move out and try and uh, just be a blessing to this elderly lady on my street corner. Um, and then maybe when the next block party comes around, maybe everyone will, will realize what I'm doing and they'll say, hey, well done. You know, well done. It's really kind of you to do that. We're hoping that people are going to appreciate this effort we make to move towards the unreliable or the needy. But that's not what happened to Barnabas. He moved towards the tarnished and he was tarnished. And when we act like Jesus, I think we need to start expecting this. You know, not everyone will think that we're a hero. And if that's our motive for reaching out to be the hero, we need to realize that that equation doesn't always work. My guess is that there are some people here again who are experiencing exactly this. That sometimes when we move towards the stigmatized or the unreliable, we ourselves are thought stigmatized and unreliable. You know, not everyone is going to say to us, oh, you're the family who have moved into that really difficult situation and adopted those kids from that really broken and difficult background. That's wonderful. Some people are going to say, oh, you're the family who've moved into that really difficult situation and adopted those kids from that uh, troubled and broken background. Do you mind if our kids don't play with yours anymore? Just because you're a little bit too weird for us now? Well, that was where Barnabas was. Think about Paul as well. Paul put an awful lot of weight on his own judgment in this section, didn't he? Paul heard the wisdom of his mentor, Barnabas. Barnabas, this guy who's the closest thing he's really got to a spiritual father, the guy who gave him his first break in public ministry. And he contradicted him flat out. He backed himself. He said, I know the right thing to do here, thank you. And he stuck with it. He repeatedly restated his position to Barnabas. And the two men went their separate ways. Paul chose Silas, and then we find in the first three verses of chapter 16, he also picks up with Timothy. And off they go on the next missionary project, the next big thing. They go through all the towns that Paul and Barnabas visited together, and then they head off to the place that Paul thinks is the, is the future for the gospel. And I wonder whether you saw where it was in Acts 16, verse 6, 
Or is it that Paul thinks the future lies? Asia. Let's just show this on the map. It's really striking. After going throughout this region here, Paul heads east. And it makes sense, actually. Um, This whole uh, route over to the east was opened up by Alexander the Great's conquests. There's a viable route for them to pursue amazing opportunities there for the gospel. That's what Paul thinks God is calling him to do. But look what happens. I don't think there's anything quite like this in the rest of the New Testament. The Holy Spirit, we're told, kept him from preaching the gospel in Asia. Asia was the destination that Paul thought best. He's got his new disciples with him. They're all looking up to the big man, thinking, you know, he knows what he's doing. Holy Spirit won't let them go in. Try it. Can't do it. So then Paul thinks again, and he says, okay, well, where should we go now? He racks his brain and thinks, well, maybe if it's not Asia, maybe it's Bithynia. Did you see that in verse 7? So again, let's just get that on the map. So this is Bithynia up here. So if not east, then maybe north. And what happens? He he backs his judgment again. Again, he's got his group of young guys all around him, anxious to see wonders from the great apostle, believing that he knows exactly what he's doing. But the text tells us that the spirit of Jesus would not let him pass. I don't know what you think about this. I can't really think of any other good parallel in the whole of the Bible to this other than what happens with Balaam and the donkey. Do you remember back in Numbers 22? Kind of a strange comparison. Balaam is this Midianite prophet who's hired by the Moabites to curse Israel as they move from Egypt towards the promised land. And he jumps on his donkey and heads off on this project to go and curse the Israelites. And we read this in Numbers 22, 21. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding his donkey, and his two servants were with him. But when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field, and Balaam beat it to get it back onto the road. You know, the only redeeming feature of this comparison, I think, is that when uh, Balaam was opposed and told that he couldn't go through, he tried to oppose God three times, and he ends up having his donkey speak to him and say, kind of like, God, you see, there's an angel in the way. I, I, don't, I don't do a very good donkey accent. I could have studied that better. Um, <laughs> Paul, at least, uh, only opposes God twice. Um, you know, he tries east, he tries north, neither will work. Um, and so he ends up going uh, over to the west, over to Troas, and he doesn't suffer the indignity of being talked to by his own means of transport. Um, um, And it's striking, even when he reaches Troas, you know, this man who's backed his own judgment so much, God completely bypasses Paul's judgment when it comes to it. He just sends him a dream. And the dream says, go, and he goes. So why did it play out like this? Well, you and I all know that God is sovereign, don't we? And that he uses history and that he writes history to tell his own story. And I don't think it's an accident that this happens right after this incident with John, Mark, and Barnabas. Paul was sure in this instance, wasn't he, that he knew what the right thing to do was, just as he'd been sure with John Mark. The church in Antioch had been a little bit kind of uh, hesitant to cast any questions on it. Uh, They didn't want to call Paul's judgment into question, but it seems to me that God has no scruples about that whatsoever. God humiliates Paul in front of his new assistants. Twice, Paul sets off with a vision of where he thinks he's needed, and God has to physically stop him in his tracks. And as if he's saying, look, okay, Paul, you're backing yourself. 
This is what I think of it. Not much. So that's our passage. And it's kind of depressing, isn't it? To see all of our three characters left in that state. But bless God, that's not the place where the Bible leaves the story. And if we can see ourselves in the lives of any of these three individuals, well, I hope that we'll discover, just in the way that the story plays out, an incredible message of hope for our souls. You see, this isn't the last thing that we hear about John Mark or Barnabas or Paul. And the way that their stories play out sheds a lot of light on the text that we've got in our hands now. So let's just go through each of the three men again. Start with thinking, uh, start with um, Barnabas with me, if you will. Barnabas does actually disappear out of the New Testament at this point, although he's mentioned in other places. Um, But I want us to think really carefully about the way that he goes. See, he's traveling with this outcast, John Mark, to Cyprus, isn't he? And I think there's something in that. Do you remember on the first missionary journey that John Mark traveled with Paul and Barnabas through Cyprus to get to Galatia where where he bottled it? So look at what Barnabas is doing here. He's taking him back to Cyprus because he's pastoring this young man. John Mark has just been crushed by Paul. He's been told he has no future in ministry at all. And Barnabas says, look, I don't agree. I beg to differ. I think you do have a future. And he takes him back to the one place in his story where he succeeded to help him get his legs back underneath him. He knows that John Mark can manage Cyprus. So that's where he takes him. And Barnabas sticks with him. Barnabas is ready to swallow that kind of pain of being cold-shouldered by Paul and by his own church. Because he just knows that God has got something in John Mark's future. He's gifted John Mark, and he just wants to be a blessing to that. And he doesn't mean mind going down in order to achieve it. And it wouldn't surprise me if Barnabas actually died here. You know, if he just stayed on the island encouraging Mark, working with the local churches. And that was where he stumped out. Now think about John Mark's story with me for a minute. Like Barnabas, at this point, John Mark disappears out of the story of Acts. But he doesn't disappear from the rest of the story of the New Testament. It's true we don't hear about anything, anything about him for a long time. But about 15 years after our story, something really striking turns up. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. And look at the list of people that Peter mentions at the end of that uh, letter. Here we find some familiar names. Peter says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother. I've written to you briefly. Well, we know a bit about Silas now. And then right at the end, Peter says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. Babylon is just a euphemism for Rome. So he's saying, anonymous lady in Rome, sends you her greetings. And so does my son, Mark. That's John Mark. That's the Mark that we pictured in his study at the beginning Enduring the persecution under Nero, standing firm in danger, deciding not to compromise the truth about Jesus' life, but writing it down so that even if today is the very day that he's executed, that that story will live on after him. That's our man. That's the man from Acts. Our Bibles don't tell us quite how he managed to find his way from Cyprus to Rome. But in the end, John Mark became to Peter what Timothy was to Paul. Peter didn't just call him a helper, but a son. He moved from being the man that Paul rejected to being the man that Peter adopted. Isn't God good? He served as Peter's assistant through all those dangers of the Neronian persecution. He wrote down 
Peter's recollections. What we have in Mark's gospel is kind of Mark's dictation of the things that Peter saw. And he preserved all of those things for us in the gospel at amazing personal cost. So you see that Barnabas turned out to be right in the end. God was working in John Mark. Yes, he failed, but with our God, failure is not the end. Barnabas saw God's gifting in his life because Mark really did have gifts that God wanted to use. Despite all of the failure and disappointment that he experienced earlier in his life, God brought him to a place of profound usefulness. And maybe we shouldn't say despite his failure and disappointment. Maybe we should actually say because. Because I think we can see how God wove even the pain of all of Mark's past into that wonderful present ministry that he had in Rome. You see, after Peter's death, Mark ended up pastoring this church where persecution had taken this enormous toll. Nero had executed some of the best and the most faithful believers. And what was left? People who had denied Christ, people who had run away, people who had failed. And who was the person who was equipped to pastor that congregation? The man who had failed himself. Even in the gospel that he wrote, I think that we could see the fruit of the fire that God took him through. Mark is just so amazingly bold when he writes about the disciples and their failures and their weakness. He's brutal with Peter when it comes to that moment when Peter denies Christ. He, um, it's striking, actually, that in the story of Nero's persecution, what Nero would do is he would bring Christians in and have them deny Christ three times. And the third time, he'd have them do it with a curse. He'd say, do you curse Christ? Now, in Mark's gospel, uniquely, we have that phrase, Peter called down curses on himself in his last denial. Well, literally, what that means in the Greek is Peter cursed Christ. Mark's bold enough to say, look, this person who you revered and who was the most amazing example to you, look, he was where you were. And Mark can do that because he's been there himself. But our story doesn't end with Mark either. Think with me now just a little bit about Paul too. If you were to jump now, don't do it, uh, to the book of Colossians chapter 4. Well, that's written in Rome in about AD 60. Paul was writing to one of the churches that he helped to plant earlier in his life. And like Peter, he sends greetings from some of the people who are with him. And so we hear about Epaphras, who's wrestling for the Colossians in prayer. And then he mentions three Jews who are with him, who are encouraging and comforting him. One called Aristarchus, one called Justice, and the third one is Mark. Mark. This is our Mark too. So not only was Mark in Rome with Peter sticking it out in the face of all of that danger, but he was there with Paul, and the two men were reconciled. If you jump to 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter that he writes pretty much on the eve of being beheaded, uh, in chapter 4, verse 11, Paul has this really moving section about how some of the people that he trusted in Rome have betrayed him and let him down. But listen to the way that he finishes. He says this, only Luke is with me. Will you... Timothy, will you get Mark and bring him with you? Because he's helpful to me in my ministry. Isn't that amazing? That in the past, Mark had deserted Paul, but now he's the person that Paul turns to when he's being deserted by others. But for me, the most striking kind of Mark sighting of them all is in the book of Philemon where we started. Because what's that book all about? It's the Mark story retold, isn't it? It's all about a master who's deserted by a gifted young man and about someone begging the master to give him a second chance. But you see now how the roles are reversed. 
In our story, Paul was the master, and Barnabas was begging Paul to give Mark a second chance. But in Philemon, do you see how completely Paul has learned his lesson? Because now it's Paul playing the Barnabas role. Paul's the person who has learned to see God's work in the life of an outcast and who's willing to look like an idiot in order to help that outcast find a future. And the thing that really does it for me is just the way that the letter closes, and I only really spotted this this last week. In the end of the greetings at Philemon, Paul writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so does Mark. He's right there with him, even in the flipping office. Incredible. So where did Paul get that wonderful pastor's touch? That's our question, isn't it? Well, don't... I think we've got liberty just to see here that Paul changed, his heart was changed by God through this whole incident. I just love the irony of this. You know, Paul is the guy who saw Mark's failure and said, no way, no way. That disqualifies you. You can't play anymore. You won't have a second chance. And there may be some people in this room who are just feeling really badly pricked by that because you might be like that kind of unreformed Paul maybe a proud, self-confident person who sets a super high bar for themselves and a super high bar for everyone else, and now you're watching the fruit of Paul's actions and seeing the damage it can do. Maybe that's you as an employer. Maybe that's you as a husband or as a wife. Maybe that's you as a parent. But if that is you, I want you to be encouraged as well as convicted by this passage because God can change even that heart. God showed Paul, wise though he was, that even his judgment was fallible. God saw to it, didn't he, that the very steps Paul took, the very first steps Paul took in ministry with these men who would be the disciples of his life, Silas and Timothy, well, they were steps where they saw him fail and be utterly humiliated. And after that, it seems he was never the same. We don't know how long it took. Maybe it was. I I, I pray that it was straight after he saw God's hand saying, no, not Asia, no, not Bithynia. But maybe it took longer. But one way or another, God gave Paul a second chance. So you see that this apparently dry section of Scripture has actually got the full riches of the gospel just exploding out of it. Who is the person who really gets it in our text? It's Barnabas, isn't it? And what is it that really getting it involves? Barnabas identifies himself with the outcasts, And he is outcast. This is the last we hear with him. He leaves without the blessing of his home church, and he goes down. He's willing to be less, willing to step away from being the big man with the big church, with the big missionary reputation, willing to step into anonymity. He doesn't have to, but he does. And we might look at that and say, well, hold on. You know, I'm really, I love church, and I love Christianity, and I think Jesus is great, but this really isn't for me. But you see, all that Barnabas is doing here is just following his master, because this is the story of our rescue, isn't it? Jesus became an outcast on our behalf, and what was the result? He was cast out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is what he said on my behalf on the cross. Jesus moved towards us in our situation as kind of spiritual marks, as failures. And he moves towards us despite the fact that all around us and maybe even from within us, we hear the voice of that spiritual Paul saying, you're unreliable. You already blew it. You heard this gospel stuff way back, didn't you? 
And then you try this all for a long time and then it all comes to absolutely nothing. You're a doubter. You're a weak link. God has nothing he can do with you. And you hear Jesus playing the Barnabas role saying, hold on a minute, I'm attaching myself to you. And everyone is going to think that I'm an idiot for doing this. And you know what? I don't care. I will give up my comfort and the blessings of my home for you. And I will go to Cyprus or whatever the equivalent of Cyprus is while all the big shots go off to Asia or Bithynia or wherever they think they're going. And I will disappear that you might be lifted up. And I will help you release all that God saw in his heart for you when he pulled down the blessings that are in your life from the rack before you even entered the world. And can you see what an amazing, amazing message of hope that is for us now? Because I guess there are many of us here who are just feeling somehow that our past fundamentally disqualifies us for usefulness in the future. You know, we say, I I took a wrong turn somewhere. I missed God's will for my life. God's best for me is over there on some other path. And you can't get there from here. I missed it. I missed it. I can't undo what I did. But you see that the God that you're dealing with here is bigger than that. What was God's best for Mark's life? To pastor a church full of failures and to teach them that God is a God of second chances. Without his failures that we've read about today, he wouldn't have been that man. And what was God's best for Paul's life? To be the man who, above all others, would record the truth that God is a redeeming God. That God buys back the lost and repurposes their mistakes for good. Well, without the failures that we've just read about in our passage, do you believe that he could have been that man? And that's the story of God's sovereignty in the Bible. God is too big to be derailed by our failure. God wants to work with it to make us into the servants that he would have us be. There's no need for us to stay stuck, kind of defined by our own shame and discouragement, saying, I'll, I'll never get out of this. God says, you're right. That is you. You can't change it. But I will work with it if you will just let me to create something more beautiful than you could possibly imagine. We can suffer and inflict many evils in this world. But if we would say to God, God, would you redeem this for your glory? God can work all of it for good, for the saving of many lives. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we just call down the blessing of this text on ourselves and on those that we know. Jesus, we come to you with so many things in our past that we regret, so many things which we've done where we've failed, so many places where we have failed to extend grace and a second chance to those who need it. But God, we see in this that even that can be absorbed into your plan of goodness and grace if we will let you do it. And we just say, come, come, Lord Jesus. Use what we are and where we've come from for your glory in the world. And might we become less, that you become more. Would you reveal your redeeming love in our lives?